Hello and welcome to Phil's View of the Movies. Now this month, we've got a very special guide to this movie's discussion. A couple of months ago, Phil wrote a fantastic piece about the Coen brothers and their films. And we're going to discuss that in depth on this episode. Phil, welcome back. Yeah, thanks very much, guys. Let's start with the most important question. Where can people find your fascinating article? My website is philthebearblog.wordpress.com. All my articles on directors are under the features section. One of the first things that comes out of that article is you became a fan at quite a young age, watching films underage. Nice one, Phil. (laughs) (laughs) What was it about the Coen brothers that's made you so loyal to them after so many years? I think it's their sense of humour, which I identify with quite a lot, and their range. So they kind of switch between sort of serious and not so serious films, like almost sort of as a recurring sort of every other film. They seem to kind of cover every genre. So film noir, they touch on sort of musicals and westerns, crime films, comedy, slapstick. But their sense of humour is either completely ridiculously stupid and slapstick or kind of intellectual and dry all of that together i just think is just really really good fun and as with a lot of directors that i like they kind of have a an actor's repertory where lots of people return and do small roles and bits and pieces for them but they have people who kind of are like-minded and come along and do lots of films with them in your opinion, is there anybody else out there like the Coens at the moment? I think that they're quite unique at the moment. So other sort of directors that I kind of love that sort of do like write and direct are probably people like Wes Anderson, which we've talked about before, and Paul Thomas Anderson. But the Coens have a really sort of wide range in terms of you know this comedy crime serious sort of stuff whereas like Wes Anderson as much as I love him I could take the argument that his films kind of fit in quite a sort of small box and Paul Thomas Anderson sort of a film every few years and they're always quite sort of prestige pictures in terms of the seriousness and the, the sort of depth of them whereas the Coens will have serious films, but they'll also have the likes of Raising Arizona, which is just a complete laugh from end to end. And I don't think there's any directors like that out there at the moment. So it's a real love of the quirky then? Oh yeah, definitely. Which comes back again to the beginning of your sort of love for the Coens. And when you started working for a cinema, you did something with your name badge? What, what did <laughs> yes. you do? So I worked at the cinema between the ages of 17 and 21. And whilst we were there, uh, the cinema did many things with name badges. They changed like the shape and size and all the rest of it. And at one point, they decided that everybody who worked there would have their favourite film on their name badge. And the whole idea is it was meant to be a talking point for the customer. So the customer could see what your favorite film was and have a chat with you about it. Now, whilst most people my age uh, were picking the comic sort of effect, so there was a Natalie Portman film called Anywhere But Here. And I remember somebody picked that as their favorite film. So that it, it had on their name badge, Anywhere But Here. That's brilliant. I uh, picked my favorite film at the time, which was Miller's Crossing. Did anybody ever approach you? on it most of the time it was what's that (laughs) (laughs) the only people who ever asked me about it didn't have a clue what it was it was almost like it to the point that they didn't realize it was a film title they were just like why have you got Miller's Crossing on your badge oh dear me what a sad loss to those people (laughs) we'll come back to we'll come back to that film surely I was gonna say I don't know if you guys have even noticed but if you look at the banner on my website it's the hat from Miller's Crossing. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about that hat. That, that's yeah. raised a lot of questions over many decades, that hat has. Now, in your article, and I said it's a really fascinating article, and I recommend anybody listening to this, seek it out, give it a read. It's brilliant. During the course of it, you list five Cohen masterpieces, and we're going to be talking about those in depth shortly. Can you name them now, though, as a bit of a pop quiz? I can. I can as long as I go in release order. Okay. (laughs) That would be Miller's Crossing, Fargo, The Big Lebowski, No Country for Old Men, and their greatest film, in my opinion, Inside Lewin Davis. Now, before we start going through them film by film, 
One overriding factor in most of their films is they use Carter Burwell to do the music scores. And as you know, I'm a huge film music fan. What are his standout scores for you? That's hard to choose, and I probably would bow down. I'd be interested in your opinion, actually, because you do love your music scores. The two that I would say stand out the most are Miller's Crossing and Fargo. And the reason for both of them, and like sort of found this out in my sort of research, what he did for both of those is he took a traditional piece of music and wove it into his theme for each film. And I think that the way that he did that really sort of evokes a sense of place and sort of feeling and, and time to those particular films. But to disappoint you slightly, the films that... I think have the greatest music in them isn't because of the score, it's because of their use of songs in the film. So they've also got a relationship with T-Bone Burnett. And I think if you listen to the songs for Oh Brother, Where Art Val, Inside Lewin Davis and The Big Lebowski, the music that they sort of piece together and put into those films is just fantastic. Again, I haven't seen Lewin Davis, so I can't comment, but the other two were good. I'm fascinated by what you're saying about Carter Burwell using a piece of music and then riffing almost an entire score off that. And you're right, Miller's Crossing and Fargo are both brilliant. I would add one more to that list, though, The Headsucker Proxy, which I think is a tremendous score. And again, he does the same thing there. The Headsucker is a film that... I mean, score-wise, yeah, I, I liked it, but the, my issue with Hudsucker is it's in re-watching all of these films. The Hudsucker Proxy was a film that I loved when I saw it, sort of so when I first discovered them. But actually, on re-watching it with all their other works, I think it's probably in their sort of bottom five films. The score's fine. I just, like, where I know, like, you sort of, like, the score's a really big thing for you. Sometimes, for me, if the film attached to it isn't so good it still kind of doesn't do it for me, if you see what I mean. Yeah, no, no, no. It'd be interesting to go back and revisit that. But in the subject of now revisiting the the Coen Brothers films, let's go back to basics and work our way through and and just flesh out where this fascination with the Coens comes from. So their very first film was Blood Simple. Mm. That was an interesting, very dark film, which they struggled to get their casting together. And one thing, when I was reading your article, I didn't know was the story of how Francis McDormand, who is quite Mm. key to the Coen brothers, both personally and professionally, came into their lives. For our listeners, could you tell that story, please, Phil? Yeah, so um, the Coens had cast Holly Hunter for the lead role in Blood Simple. But Holly Hunter had committed to a play which basically clashed with the filming schedule. So she, um, being a good friend and roommate, suggested that her current roommate at that time, Frances McDormand, audition for the role. And obviously she got it, and Joel Cohen and her fell in love during the filming of um, Blood Simple, married the year it was released, and 35 years later still together, and McDormand has done six films now for them, including that one. Holly Hunter got her role in Raising Arizona, which was their second film. Yeah, mind you, they made us suffer in Blood Simple. I mean, Blood Simple is one of these James N. Cain stories where somebody sets out to get revenge on somebody else. I don't don't want to give the plot away because it's so clever, but they bring in a hitman. You've got people like Dan Hager, M. Emmett Walsh, Francis McDormand, in this amazingly dark and almost filthy film, really, but just so well done. I just think it's such a... I mean, so this is... You've got to remember, this is like their debut film on a budget that they've kind of got together by sort of begging around everyone. And it's such a pure piece of genius cinema. I almost can't believe, like, when you watch it, it's a debut film. It's not really rough around the edges at all anywhere. Talking of scores, I don't know if you've seen it recently, Jeff, simple and sparse piano score. The main character, so the person who plays the guy who runs the bar and is the sort of love interest of Francis McDormand's, his car always has trouble starting. The score, when he's like trying to start his car and you've got like the sort of the noise of the motor turning over, they actually pause the music whilst he's trying to start the car. And then as the car starts, the music kicks in again. And it's like little clever things like that that I just think are really clever. And M. Emmett Walsh is the sleaziest 
a private investigator imaginable. And his final line for the film is just spectacular. I'm sure I won't ruin, just go and watch it. Yeah, no, it's just that whole final sequence is just brutal and nasty. I mean, M. Emmett Walsh is just one of these actors that, I mean, I think this is his finest hour and he's a great actor, but he just never got the due he should have had. You know, I, I think back of him in films like Ordinary People, where he was very much a supporting role there. But he should have been more centre stage and I think this shows what he could have done. One of the things I was going to say in general is the Coens like to generally have a representation of the devil in their films and you could probably go through most of their films and point to a particular character who kind of represents evil or represents the devil and he does that in this particular film and he's just sweaty sleazy and has no morals and he does it incredibly well yeah that's interesting that's the theme we're going to come back to with such films as uh... No Country for Old Men and Fargo, where that is very much to the fore. I take it, again, from the article, you didn't watch this film first. You came back to this later on. So I first discovered them via Fargo, because that was just a huge film when that came out. And as a result, everything sort of pre-Fargo, I then had to track down on VHS to watch it. So it wasn't the first film of theirs that I saw. It was probably, probably the fifth or sixth film that I saw. But when I did the article, I watched them all again in sequence. One of the things with Blood Simple that really struck me is how similar it is to their mate Sam Raimi's work. Yeah, so Sam Raimi was uh, a roommate for a while, and uh, he's done second unit stuff. So the Hudsucker Proxy that you mentioned earlier, the two best sequences in the Hudsucker Proxy are filmed by Sam Raimi. I didn't know that. The opening sequence in the boardroom where Hudsucker commits suicide yeah. and the the sequence where the hula hoop is discovered, both of those were filmed by the second unit director, which is Sam Raimi. So Blood Simple had come out. It's this really dark film. It was a real darling of the film festival circuit for the year it came out. So they went off and made their second film, and all of that was thrown out. They make this screwball comedy, Raising Arizona, starring Nicolas Cage and, as we mentioned, Holly Hunter, who go off and steal a child because they can't have one of their own. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of that jump in style? <laughs> If I'd seen their films in sequence, like when they first came out, I probably would have been really, really shocked. But I think because I was kind of watching sort of five or six films that they'd already made, it didn't seem much of a bother to me. And now, actually, if you go through their films in sequence, it is not an issue for them at all to swap between like slapstick comedy and deeply serious sort of Oscar-worthy sort of stuff. Raising Arizona's a huge like a load of fun all the yodeling and stuff on the on the yeah. score is great yeah yeah i've forgotten about that that's good fun it's the funny it's the first coen brothers film i saw blood symbol didn't get a wide release at the time of it coming out but this one did and i would have thought nicholas cage would have been seated to the coens for a lot of films but if i'm right this is the only one he appeared in wasn't it it is the only one he appeared in i think i think that he is too much of an improviser if you see what I mean. Oh, right. <laughs> because the Coens, it's very much, it's all scripted. It's in the script. I, I think it's, I mean, it might be the case that he maybe he got too big for them after that point. You know, I think it's a case of he wanted to do a bit more improvisation and they wanted him to stick to the script because his mad hat sort of behaviour in that film is all in the script. <laughs> it's just incredible. I mean, Randall Tex Cobb, Leonard Smalls, the lone biker of the apocalypse. It's just an amazing <laughs> yes. character. Again, he's like the representation of evil, except I'm pretty certain there's a scene towards the end where he falls out slightly. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah, no, you're right, yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to spoil it for the listeners. It is just an absolutely manic film, and that whole bizarre dream sequence at the end of the film, just great, really great mm, stuff. Mm. So then we come to the first of your masterpieces, and I've got mm. to agree, it's actually it is my favourite Coen Brothers film, Miller's Crossing. And it's not a film that was without its problem because Trey Wilson, who played the father in Raising Arizona, died as they were in production, and Albert Finney, I believe, stepped in. Is that correct? I definitely knew he'd been cast. I didn't know that they'd actually started filming or started production, but he definitely had been cast and they had to make a late change. Yeah, and the other thing, which I guess is more in the terms of the script aspect, is that they famously struggled to finish the script and just basically put it in the drawer and went away and wrote Barton Fink and then came back 
and finished writing the script for this one. They refused to accept it was writer's block, even though Barton Fink is all about a writer with writer's block. <laughs> so, <laughs> for you, makes Miller's Crossing a masterpiece. It's got a, an amazing sort of multi-layered storyline with lots and lots of double crosses, which is just classic sort of film noir sort of thing that they do. The first time I watched it, I really struggled to almost keep up with all the names and who was doing what to who, but it's really worth sticking with it. I think it's a, a standout for the gangster sort of genre piece across all sort of gangster films. Gore, which we talked about, is superb. Sublime, sublime. Um, the cinematography, so the opening sequence, just to sort of refer to the shots of the trees in the opening sequence, which is it's now almost tired to sort of see a film where the camera's pointing upwards at the sort of treetops with the sun sort of coming through. But it just looks beautiful. The language, they create like a whole shorthand language in the film that isn't based on anything other than just what they came up with. But you're able to hear it and know what they're referring to. Very much like Pulp Fiction so, novels say, of the 30s and 40s. Yeah, exactly. So like the you know characters will say, what's the rumpus and let him dangle and things like that. But you know, in the context of the film, what it is, it has one of the greatest action scenes in Albert Finney with a Tommy gun. Yeah. Um, just everybody in it, in terms of their performances, I'm not sure that I've seen any of them give a better performance so Gabriel Byrne in the lead Albert Finney obviously took over the role as we said a minute ago um, John Tutero who plays Bernie Birnbaum the Coen's like characters with really funny names as well that's a theme he's only in the film for 10-15 minutes but his performance is just phenomenal and certainly his scene in Miller's Crossing which is the 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 sort of trees, uh, the forest that they take people to when they need to get rid of someone. The thing that always strikes me with Miller's Crossing, why I really like it, it's peopled with the most repellent and foul characters you could imagine. And the whole film pivots on a moment where somebody does the right thing. And that good deed undoes everything that then comes in the second half of the film. And I think that's... That's incredible and, and clearly something they're having a great deal of fun with. I think the key question, and it's been asked many times, Phil, what's the significance of the hat in Miller's Crossing? <laughs> I've read lots on this and I've spoke to different people about this. And I think that the, the most sort of commonly sort of the one I think that people attach to the most is that the hat represents his armour. So it's essentially what allows him to stick to his task and do his job. And every time he gets hurt, it's because he hasn't got his hat on him. But for me, personally, and given like what the Coens do in general with a lot of their stuff, it doesn't really mean so much as it gives them an interesting, quirky visual motif that they can refer back to and it gives something memorable for everyone to sort of attach to and, and sort of associate with that film. I'm going to have to go watch it again. That will not be a hardship. <laughs> what would be a hardship, however, if I ever had to go back and watch Barton Fink again? Now, <laughs> I know you like this one, Phil. What is yeah, it you I like do. about I really it? I like this film. Uh, so, well, great thing about this film, which is why we're going to be talking about it now, is it promotes debate. When you watch this film, it's that age-old thing of, is what's happening on screen real or is it a metaphor? Is it in his mind? Is he dead? You know, when you think about who is the villain of this film, is it Barton Fink or is it the hotel or is it John Goodman's guest in the hotel? Or do you just give up and, and not care halfway that... through like I did? <laughs> you could do that as well, I guess. But the... <laughs> The um, again, again. So you were just saying about Miller's Crossing being full of characters that are dislikable, and and I think that's also probably a theme for the Coens. But Barton Fink is essentially about a writer who describes himself as a writer for the people, but actually he generally seems to dislike the people, and he certainly thinks he's above the people, and it's just a an interesting view into this guy's psyche and my personal opinion is that what's happening in that film is a representation of Barton Fink's mind I don't think it's literal 
and the final shot. And they do this quite often. And I, I mentioned it with Blood Simple. And the same goes for A Serious Man. And there's lots of other of their films that do it. The, the final scene has a really peculiar like final line and a final ending that just like makes you like if you were in a cinema it's that thing where instead of getting up and walking out when the credits roll it makes you sit there and just ponder it and think about what did that actually mean just for a few seconds more and i think that's great luckily i didn't pay to the cinema go to the cinema to watch that somebody loaned it to me on that video as it was back then so i was able to turn it off straight away um <laughs> 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 have but, any of the other guys seen it no no, no I'm, uh, I'm not I, sure why I've got to I've got to watch it I mean I loved Lewin Davis so much and that was just a a throwaway line from you and, I, and everything else I really liked by the Coen brothers and I keep thinking I should go and watch everything these guys have done am I right that they write all their their own stuff as well so they're, yeah, they're so, doing the so heavy they're work. They're proper auteurs. Yes, um, so they, they write and they direct. Produce, produce, write, direct and edit. So if you look at the editor on all the Cohen films, it's a made-up guy's name. It's a made-up guy who has been Oscar-nominated. It's something to do with the guilds. You know, they have the unionization and guilds yeah. in America. They're not allowed or... I'm not sure quite why, but the editor of the Cohen films is a made-up person who is the Cohen brothers. Ha! Huh. That's hilarious. Wow. <laughs> but, I mean, look at the quality of films they've produced, and they've written that, and then they've directed it and edited it. It's just a shitload of work. It is. Yeah. It is yeah. an awful lot of work to do that, and it's just and amazing. And actually, when we when we come to the films that I think are their weaker films, which will be in the sort of middle sort of part of this, we'll come back to what you just said about the fact that it's, you know, how much part they actually had in controlling the whole piece of, the, like, making that film. Well, that's really interesting, because we're about to come on to the Headsucker Proxy. So this film, essentially a simple tale about the guy who invents the hula hoop, um, they had achieved all this. They were getting loads and loads of awards. Joel Silver came out, got them a $25 million deal to make a film, which back in those days is big, big money. And they made the House Sucker Proxy. Wasn't a hit financially. Do you think they overstretched with this one, Phil? I mean, you've already said that when you went back to it, you didn't think so much of it. I, I love it. But what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't think it works. I don't think it's that they overstretched. I think that, I don't think that, the lead, uh, Tim Robbins, works totally for them in terms of their style. And I think that it's a bit too simplistic. A lot of their films have a very simplistic kind of overall plot, but they layer it with lots of characters and lots of sort of subplots that make it really interesting and unique. And this one is quite simple. It's quite Capra-esque. Yeah, um, good, it's very good expression. Sort of, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful life type style. I mean, there's a scene where Norville Barnes is running. I'm sure it's snowing and he's like running to his um, girlfriend and shouting in the street. And it's very much like it's a wonderful life in, in that regard. I think the best, the absolutely best part of it is Jennifer Jason Lee's character. She basically plays like a Catherine Hepburn 1940s fast speaking strong woman I think that's the best thing in the film a lesser Coen brother film is still a very good film in my opinion so you know, it might it might not be in their you know, best films but I still think it's something that lots of people enjoy just as a quirky lifting piece of sort of slice of life but it's interesting you call it Capra-esque where I think this and some of the others Barton Fink as well are very influenced by Preston Sturges. You know, films like Sullivan's Travels, uh, that seems to come through in, in a lot. It's it's slightly yeah, I mean, darker uh, than Capra. Yeah, it is darker, Capra, definitely. And, and a lot of their stuff is like Dashiell Hammett and that sort of 1940s kind of noir stuff. I'm pretty certain that Preston Sturges was a huge influence on them as well and just in general they do have a bit of a love affair with the hollywood studio system and the films of that era so barton think the author goes and works on a film studio to write a, a film the name of that studio is reused later on in how caesar which is also set during the hollywood studio system and it's the same film studio that both barton think and uh, the lead character in how caesar works at now, I've become fascinated as we got on with this discussion about actors that only work with the Coens once. 
Tim mm. Robbins, Nicolas Cage. And one for me who I thought would have been great, because I thought he was great in this film, was Paul Newman. Now, I appreciate Newman was getting on in years as well. But would you have seen him in other Coen Brothers films? Do you think he would have fitted into that repertoire? I definitely think they would have had him in the way that they have George Clooney, where he subverts his persona. There's no way that Paul Newman's charismatic, blue-eyed, good-looking, sort of happy sort of guy thing would have fitted into the Cohen's world. It's too quirky and dark and, and weird for that. But I, I definitely think, like, so in Hudsucker, he's playing kind of like a, a cartoon villain, isn't he? And he's yeah. loving every minute of it with a Absolutely. massive cigar in his mouth. And I think that they would have used him in that sort of role the best thing they could have done, and I don't, I don't know how old Newman would have been or if he would have even still been with us at that point, but in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, the guys escape a chain gang and the chain gang boss is kind of tracking them across the countryside. And he's kind of, again, the depiction of the devil in that film. Yeah. Wouldn't it have been great if Paul Newman, subverting his cool hand Luke role, was that chain gang boss like chasing them across the country? Well, <laughs> fantastic idea. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just think, and I think you're right, I think had it been 10 years earlier, I think we would have seen some great performances from Newman in, in some of the Coen Brothers films. Just a shame that it was at the time he was out. I think Paul Newman's a fantastic actor. I love Paul Newman films. I mean, I'm not sure when he retired from acting. Um, um, but I know, Road to Perdition was pretty much the last one. Yeah. Then, then he did Cars. Cars, I think, was his last one, which yeah. is 2006. It's a shame because you look at certainly the Newman stuff of the 60s. We've mentioned Cool and Luke, but I would also mention, I mean, something like um, Harper or The Moving Target, as it was called in the UK, or even Ombre. These are very subversive films, and I think he'd have had a blast working with the Coens. Yeah, shame, really. Okay, well, from being depressed there, let's move on to your second masterpiece, <laughs> Fargo. Why is this one yeah. on your masterpiece list? So Fargo is the film that I discovered the Coens through. It's got a really, really simple narrative, essentially good versus evil, fire a faked kidnapping scheme. And they just have three kind of interlocking stories around it. The script, which Karen's wrote, is just superb. And they use like the local dialect of Minnesota kind of as a bit oh, of a, a mechanism yes. of having yeah. a bit of fun and yeah. a bit of humour. Frances McDormand's performance is absolutely brilliant. And she, she won the Oscar for that. But the, one of the things I pointed out in my article is this is, I think it's a 90-minute film or just over 90-minute films. She doesn't turn up for the first 35 minutes. And it's just like, that's all anyone really remembers about that film is just because she's so good. Burwell's score, which we've mentioned already. Oh, amazing. Um, Roger Deakin's cinematography. Oh, um, yeah. So yes. it's set in a very snowy Minnesota and this, any scene with a car approaching from distance or, you know, like the there's a scene, there's a car parked in an empty parking lot and I think it's William H. Macy's characters walking out to it. Those scenes just amazing, just holds this long shot and it just looks beautiful. It's just a story of good versus evil. It's simple stuff, but it's just done perfectly well. Don't you think, do you think it on occasion it's too simplistic? I mean, this comes back to your, there's always a character that represents the devil. And in this, that's um, Peter Stormore, mm. who would be the devil. McDormand and her husband are so nice. And these guys are so evil. But there's no shades of grey. That's the thing, isn't it? There is a, a phrase called Minnesota nice. And the Americans take the mickey out of it. The fact that everybody in Minnesota is so nice and they talk in that particular dialect. And it's all about being friendly and nice to one another. And I think they captured it. I loved it. I absolutely, mm, absolutely. loved it. The old leg in the wood chipper. Always the leg in the wood chipper, yeah. And all the stuff about the Norwegians, you know, the, the sort of Scandinavians who inhabit Minnesota, they all move to Minnesota. It's just, it's a really great film. And the interviewing of the two prostitutes was just hysterically funny. <laughs> yes. I, it's it's, kind of funny looking. Yeah, kind of funny looking, yeah. It is good. It I, is think, good. I think it's I think it's um I think it's simple on purpose as well though, isn't it? I mean I think it's quite an idealistic film. I know lots of horrible stuff happens in it, but ultimately it ends on a hopeful note, doesn't it? It's that you know, there are good people out there 
And if there are good people out there, then, you know, we've still got hope. Yeah. It's funny, you can go back to Blood Simple a little bit because it all twists on somebody trying to do a James N. Came family plot that goes horribly wrong. He never banks on how horrible his father-in-law is, does he? Yeah, it's just absolutely insane. So what are your thoughts on Fargo the TV series? Oh, Fargo the TV series is is awesome. It's probably one of the best things on TV. It's like super underrated. I don't know too many people who've watched it, to be honest. Oh, I, have. Um, I have. loved yeah. it. Loved it, yep. It's an anthology series, isn't it? So three series, each is completely standalone, but equally each is connected to each other. It's one of those things that, again, it's uh, it's deceptively simple because each series is technically standalone and each series technically has no bearing or resemblance to any of the Cohen films, but they all link together and they all have homages and links and things that... People like me watch the series and grin because you go, oh, there's that scene that is filmed very similar to something in that film or a character name that is similar or the same as, you know, a different film. I just think it's really, really clever. Yeah, I mean, for me, season two, the one set, the gang warfare in the end of the 70s, I just thought was amazing. Yeah, Uh, and he pulled in quite a number of big stars as well, didn't he, after the... Well, actually, probably from straight from series one, but I mean, he had Ewan McGregor in the the final series, and I thought he did a a sterling job as twins. Yeah, and you just never know where it's going to go, so it is really great. Okay, let's leap on to another one of your masterpiece, number three, Big Lebowski. Why is that on your masterpiece list? Because it is. Because it is. Yeah, it's just a masterpiece. (laughs) It's the dude, man. Do you know what? I think... Was your article ghostwritten by these two, Phil, or did you actually write (laughs) it? No, but I would say of any Cohen film, this is the one that if I go and talk to someone and say, oh, I love the Cohen brothers, and they go, what what have they made? This is the one that everyone would recognize, I think, right? Because this is probably the most popular. Again, it's kind of a simple story. It's essentially a, a kidnap plot situation. But there's lots and lots of characters interlinking, sort of lots of different stuff happening. They just make it far more complicated than it ever needs to be. It's supremely funny. Eminently quotable. What else is there? And again, it is another yeah. James M. Kane family mystery thing where a whole plot is triggered by something. If people spoke to one another, none of this would ever happen. And, <laughs> you know, and, but for me, the standout character, and I know Jeff Bridges is great as the dude, and I know that there's almost religions that have grown up around it. John Goodman, who's clearly playing John Melius. Uh, the film director, and again, knowing a lot about Melius, it just makes that character funnier and funnier. The dude is is also based on a, a real person as well. Is that right? Um, these characters are based on people that the Coens knew in like the film industry, basically. So you're right about Melius. But so is Steve Buscemi, so is John Totoro, so is Julianne Moore, so is Philip Seymour Hoffman. They're, they're all great. It's just knowing as much as I do. I'm a huge Melius fan, particularly of his mm. early work. And to see this representation of this guy that tried to get into Vietnam and could get in there, but yet constantly talks as though he fought there, he will never back down. It's just, I mean, I would say it's my favourite Goodman performance. And I'm not detracting from anything else because you're right. I mean, Bridges... It's it's just a signature performance. I mean, there's a as we speak now, there's a series of adverts on TV with him, you know, Jeff Bridges in Amsterdam, yeah. you know, as a bridge. Yeah. But that clearly comes from the dude persona. Yeah, yeah. And there's all sorts of other interesting things about that film. There's the the idea that crept up that and a lot of people say that Sam Elliott's character is actually in the dude's mind and he doesn't really exist. But I think it comes back to what Phil's saying about this good and evil. So in a way, Sam Elliott is almost an angel. Yes. Who's the devil in this one then, would you say then, Phil? John Turturro. Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I, it's probably the real Lebowski, isn't it? Or, or the one that manipulates. So Neil's got a different take on it. Or John Turturro. Oh, so John Turturro plays uh, Jesus Quintana, who's the uh, child sex offender. Yeah, yeah. Um, allegedly. Who, uh, yeah, 
more of a comic relief, I think. But yes, I the, suppose so, the, yeah. big, the, the big Lebowski himself is the guy who doesn't really care about anything other than his image. Yeah. And the whole situation unfolds because his wife like isn't like happy with him and decides to get kidnapped. But going back to the scripts that we mentioned of the script earlier, so um, one of the famous things about the script is that all of Jeff Bridges' pauses and ums and ahs is all in the scripts, apparently. So, you know, it's, it wasn't improvised. It was that's how the Coens wanted him to sound like. My most favourite sort of bits are the dream sequences. My favourite bit in it, and it's probably a bit weird, but I really loved this scene where they're trying to scatter his ashes. Oh, and it blows say, back, yeah. And it blows back. It just <laughs> caught me completely by surprise when I watched it the first time. And I was in hysterics. It was absolutely hilarious. Do you know what? I know people that loathe this film with a passion. Really? I know. I can be contrary on occasions. I know that you guys say that. Really? <laughs> uh, yeah. But no, no, I love this film. Daily basis. Let's move on to the next one then. Oh, brother, where art though? The yes. Ulysses story updated Depression era America. They went with George Clooney, which they've done repeatedly. And what I like about Clooney is he seems to go along with that and seems to enjoy it. Do you get the impression he really enjoys working with the Coens? Yeah, my understanding is that Clooney absolutely loves working with the Coens and he loves the fact that he gets to play against types. So he's kind of like a Cary Grant type but an idiot and, and he's yes. done that in, in every single one of his films he's been in Oh Brother Where Art Thou Intolerable Cruelty Burn After Reading and How Caesar without exception his character is an idiot in every single one of those films and it's yeah he loves it it's great and I think it's uh, it works really well yeah, no, it is a great film. And we mentioned the music earlier as well, which I think is first rate. And this is the first time where I really noticed Deacon's work, Roger Deacon's work. It's this... one of the very first films that was colorized using digital coloring systems. I did not know that. Yeah, they filmed it in June or July when everything was green, but they wanted everything to look brown. Deacon's colorized the whole thing. Okay. Yeah, every single shot in the film is uh, desaturated. That's so it, that desaturated. The, the, the look that they wanted. No, it's a great film, great film. Uh, the Man Who Wasn't <laughs> There. Now, I have seen it. I remember it being odd, particularly in something to do with flying saucers in it, if memory serves me rightly. Which it, turns up in the third series of Fargo. Actually, yeah, that's a point. Is yeah. there a reference point to this film, to Fargo, the TV series? And the, the yeah. first series as well, had it? Yeah. It didn't seem that memorable. Now you guys are making me want to go back and watch it again. How does it work for you, Phil? What do you think on this one? Um, I really like this film. There's three things that are really great about this film, so if you want to go back to it or if anyone hasn't seen it. So it's got a really great piano score. Carla Burwell again. Um, uh, yeah. It was shot in colour, but it's been converted to black and white because they wanted it to have a particular feel to the black and white, which apparently is different if you shoot in colour and convert back. Almost every single shot is a work of art. The, the shadows and the framing is, is absolutely spectacular. It's beautiful. Billy Bob Thornton gives, for me, probably his best performance. So he plays a character who is monosyllabic in real life, but he narrates the film. So you have on screen a character who's telling you everything in the way he looks and his eyes, but on the voiceover really going into detail about his inner feelings and, and what he wants from life and how he sort of feels. I think it's really good. It's interesting. Might have to go back. It has definitely faded for me. So is this the middle period that we're starting to come into now where things started to slip away from them? Because next up, we got Intolerable Cruelty. Yeah, so, so going back to what Graham said earlier, Intolerable Cruelty is probably the least Cohen film that there is because they wanted to make a, an adaptation of a book called To the White Sea by James Dickey and they wanted to have uh, make that with Brad Pitt yeah, and I that fell that. through. That was a World um, War II thing, wasn't it, where he, he survived on the ocean for so many days. Isn't that right? 
Yeah, I think it's a fighter pilot or something that's crashed and he needs to like go through Japan into the Arctic or something to escape or something like that. And it was meant to be that. I think that what they wanted to do was do like a film with virtually no words in it because um, it's just one person surviving on their own. Because it fell through, they didn't have anything else in the pipeline. Intolerable Cruelty was already written. It was written by some other people. It was earmarked for Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. They just had a really successful film with Runaway Bride. The studio wanted another romantic comedy that, you know, to, to fit those people. Um, and the Coens were brought on to just do a script polish. But because uh, their film fell through, they took it on. So they're credited as screenwriters, but with, I think, two other people. And then they recast and it becomes a kind of a, a screwball romantic comedy with a slightly darker edge than I imagine it ever would have been with Richard Gere and Julia Roberts in it. It's funny, it's good, and George Clooney is brilliant. So when he, he's a lawyer who talks a lot, and any scene where Clooney is in it and sort of arguing in court or in a negotiation are, are just really funny. But it is probably one of their weaker films. Okay, I'll have to go back and watch that again, I think. Now, let's skip on from there, then, to uh, the next film. Now, it's The Lady Killer, starring Tom Hanks. Now, my confession here is, I hate even comedies, yeah. and anything that pisses on their grave is good by me. And the, this That's version, of the, the, this version of The Lady harsh. Killers does that. Oh, right. Well, I think I, it's brilliant. I've seen The Lady Killers in the last six months, and I thought it was fine. It's a brilliant movie. What, the Tom Hanks one? No, the, the original oh, Muppet. No, it's, oh, it's really not, it's poor. So <laughs> I really like the Ealing comedy Lady Kiss film. I think it's a really, really good film. This is this is their bad patch. Like Intolerable Cruelty and the Lady Killers is their bad patch, if there's such a thing for the Cohen. I know, like, I, I'm going to caveat this. I've already said a lesser Cohen brother film is still an interesting film, but the Lady Killers is categorically their worst film. No, that's um, Barton thing. That, <laughs> but, but that doesn't, it doesn't mean it's bad. It just, it is not anywhere near as good as everything else. And again, this was meant to be Barry Sonnenfeld's film. So Barry Sonnenfeld was their director of photography for the first three films I think they did. He then obviously went on and did uh, yeah, The Adams Family and Men in Black. Yeah, Men in Black, yeah. Um, so he was meant to do this. This was his film. He asked them to write it, but it was he's going to be his film. Hence, it had Tom Hanks, etc. Um, but he couldn't make it. I'm not quite sure why. So they just stepped in. And this is kind of this is a big Hollywood film. It's not as quirky or interesting. And the bit I don't get about it, and I'm surprised because they wrote it, so they must have sort of decided that like, this is the direction they wanted to go in. The original film is called The Lady Killers because they do their heist. That's all over and done with, and what have you. The whole film is about a bunch of hardened criminals struggling to kill an old lady. This spends all of its time on the heist and then in the last 15 minutes goes, ah, hang on, we were supposed to kill the old lady. It kind of flips it and it, it makes it very different in terms of what its focus is. Um, very subtle, I think, is the word you're looking for, mate. <laughs> <Dear>. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's okay. It's fine. Um, J.K. Simmons is probably the funniest person in it. Tom Hanks is clearly having fun, but I don't think his performance is great. <laughs> oh, yeah, I laugh, um, I laugh throughout it. Whereas if I watch the original, I'd be asleep within 10 minutes. So dull. It's not a Cohen film. It's not, well, it is a Cohen film. It's just not as good as everything else. They've had a couple of films that really didn't make it. They weren't, certainly weren't critical hits. And then comes the big one No Country for Old Men, clearly on your masterpiece list. Why is this a masterpiece? They're sort of pairing with Cormac McCarthy's... Cause so basically, Cormac McCarthy wrote the book, and my understanding is they got a copy of the book prior to its release and wrote their script from that. Their sensibilities, that kind of dark outlook on the world, really fits in with the Cohen's sort of, sort of dark but quirky sort of look. It's very similar story to Fargo. It's good and evil. But this time... Whereas Fargo ends on an idealistic viewpoint, No Country for Old Men, I think, is the, the flip side of that coin, where actually the evil in this world can become too much for, for the people who are trying to do good. It's got 
quite sparse sort of amount of dialogue it's a lot of the story is told through the visuals and the sounds and i just think that's really good and the free lead performances so you've got tommy lee jones as the sheriff the, the sort of the good you've got javier bardem as chigar the assassin who's essentially the devil incarnate and josh brolin who plays actually kind of someone in the middle i think someone who's kind of on the boundary of is he doing the right thing Interestingly, his role was uh, talking of Albert Finney getting the casting in Miller's Crossing because an actor died. Um, Heath Ledger was going to play that role. Oh, wow. I didn't know that either. Okay. Yeah, so, and, and Josh Brolin now has been in a number of Cohen films. So, yeah, it was his first film for the Cohens at this point. And he's now been in um, at least two more, I think. Okay. I mean, the way it, the story changes tack, and obviously it's another one of these good versus evil with criminals, a lot of similarity to Fargo in, in a way. But it's also a story of, and again, going back to what you're saying, where does Josh Brolin fit in? It's a story of the devil and God, and then you've got mankind in the middle. And it's the choices that they then make between. So if you like, Tommy Lee Jones is a God, he's almost quite catching up the devil is now way ahead of him and mankind are more corruptible than ever so it's a very dark film on many levels but very well done that's a really good interpretation actually i haven't quite sort of put it together as that but i think that is a really good sort of way of explaining sort of josh brolin's character's role in the film again they sweet up the oscars and then to me they took a step backwards with burn after reading it's okay but it's and to me, it's nothing special, and the ending is just bizarre. Yeah, and I think it's back to the they they like to switch between genres. So you go from sort of a serious, heavy hitting film, and then they go to one of the blackest, darkest sort of black comedies there is. I mean, it's pitch black, and if you can accept that massive shift in tone, I find it very funny sort of film. It is different. They're doing something different. Okay, well. We're now running to the to the limits of what I've actually seen. There's only one more, so I'm looking for your guidance on whether I should watch these films now then. So A Serious Man, what can you tell us about this film and why should I watch it, Phil? I saw it at the cinema when it came out release and I was a little bit baffled because probably their most autobiographical um, film and it's about a Jewish family. The son is training to do his bar mitzvah and the father is a university professor an awful lot of Jewish um, terms and references that sort of baffled me slightly. As in Oh Brother, Where Out Thou, which was a loose adaptation of The Odyssey. So it's a loose adaptation of the book of Job. You've got a, a professor who's just getting beset by um, problem after problem. And he's just kind of, he's uh, it's called A Serious Man. He considers himself a man of logic and a serious man, and he tries to find meaning in what is happening. And he goes to see three different rabbis over the course of the film and they attempt to sort of help him with uh, stories and it's kind of a farce to an extent and it's something that as I was watching it I really kind of thought actually this explains the Coen brothers entire filmography because what is represented here is basically somebody trying to understand the deeper meaning in the bad things that are happening but the more that he tries to seek understanding, the more things spiral out of control for him. And it's almost like if you just sit back and let things walk over you, that you'd be better off. And I think that there's a lot of that as a recurring theme in their films, that people try to uh, find the deeper meaning in things like what does the hat mean and what's going on in Barton Fink. But just take it on face value and let it wash over you and you might survive yeah. that storm. The next one up is True Grit, which I think is great. I prefer the original, but I think it's a really, really good film. I want to focus on the final three, none of which I've seen, but the other chaps you have, and your next masterpiece, Inside Lewin Davis, which I'll hand over to Graham to ask you a question, because I haven't seen it. He loves it. Great Welsh name, by the way. Should be Clewellyn. <laughs> if it was Inside Clewellyn Davis. Yeah. Oh. Well, I think we've already spoken on the podcast about this film and how much I loved it. It was one of those remarks that you just made in passing, Phil, and you said, oh, that was my favourite film of 2015 or something like that. Uh, and I mm. thought, oh, I haven't seen that. There's a Coen Brothers film I haven't seen. 
I must look at that. And I was just totally bowled over. It's basically what happened behind Bob Dylan's back when he wasn't watching in <laughs> Greenwich Village. And it's just brilliant. And loads of the standard Coen Brothers people turn up again. The lead performance by Oscar Isaacs is just captivating because he's not a likable character. He's really down on his luck. He treats women terribly. Um, but he's just so realistic. And it's I like just, him already. Oh, no, it's, oh no, he's not a nice character. But you can see the, the anguish and the, and, the, and the terrible times he's going through. You know, he's trying to break it big in the music world and it's just not happening for him. What attracted you to this film and film? Why did you name it your film of the year? Because there were quite a few good films in the same year. I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan and I like folk music generally. So, and I love the Coens as you've obviously yeah. sort of uh, can tell from this sort of discussion. And, and for me, this is like my sort of perfect kind of film because it's actually not really about anything it's kind of a mood piece it's a really melancholy film that follows a guy over a course of a week and actually he doesn't really learn anything no he's he's in a bit of a time warp like a, a loop sort of thing which is very well portrayed in the film when you watch it it's the tone and so it's really melancholy it's really funny is really dark and reflective. Um, and again, it's an inspection into the mind of an artist. So they've done it with Barton Fink. We talked about it before where it's, uh, they're sort of are looking at an, art, an artist's sort of way that they approach things. So he's very much throughout, he doesn't want to sell out. It's about like being pure. But he's clearly broken as well. So before off screen before we sort of get introduced to him his uh, songwriting and sort of performing partner has killed himself yeah. and he's clearly re really really struggling to deal with that and you see that in sort of tiny sort of moments how Oscar Isaac didn't win everything let alone he wasn't even nominated for best actor but he he sings and plays everything there's no miming or anything in this film he does everything and it's just his performance is just Amazing. One of the best things I think I've ever seen on film, to be honest. I can't believe that he just didn't even get nominated. It's just fantastic. I mean, the film, it, you, you know whether you like it or not, because the film, like in the first five minutes of the film, it basically opens with him on stage and the camera just says while well, he performs an entire song from start to finish. Yeah, they really sort of go all in on the fact that this is about a folk musician and you the only time you really truly see him is when he's performing on stage throughout the rest of the film he's dodging and diving around to try and get to the next paycheck that really comes across beautifully so the actual performances stand out as these like glowing moments and then the rest of his life is just chaos and he actually when he goes on the road trip to chicago I mean, that's just completely weird. Uh, <clears throat> and then you think, yes. well, no, that's just his life. That all makes sense. And then he comes back to New York and it's still crazy and weird. And then he goes back on stage and you think, oh, this guy really has some talent. But nothing ever happens for him. And it's just, yeah. The one reason you should watch it, Jeff, if you, if you have to have one reason is... If you are perplexed and want to discuss what that does the hat mean in Miller's Crossing, go and watch this film and tell me what does the cat mean. In, I was going to ask you about the cat. Yeah. Yeah. The cat is yeah. bizarre, yes. Okay. No, no, it's definitely on my list. I will definitely go for that. We jump from that one, and again, another one I haven't seen, Hail Caesar, which looks in the Barton Finkish mode. Am I right or not? No, no, you're not, you're not right. <laughs> It's much more of a screwball comedy, like a farce, than there's there's no um, introspection here at all. This is this is the Coens basically saying we love the Hollywood studio system. If we set a film that is loosely based around a guy who is a, a kidnap plot within that studio system, what we can then do is we can cut to all the different film lots on that studio 
studio and we can do a 10 minute segment of all those films we love <laughs> so you get you get to see a western you get yep. to see a musical like a fred astaire type musical yeah you get to you get scarlett johansson doing synchronized swimming Yes, oh, um, God, you, yeah. yes. Yeah. And she's pregnant. And you get to see Ralph Fiennes. Yeah, and you get to see Ralph Fiennes um, directing a prestige. Oh, jeez, he is so funny. And that the yeah. the lead actor is so stupid. Well, the, the, it's it's a yeah. dif, it's a difficult difficult disease. Which is the the funnier, Clooney or Josh Brolin, who's trying to battle the two reporters who are the same person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tilda Swinton playing Tilda twins, Swinton, which, she's which so is funny. Actually apparently based on a, a real sort of uh, journalist uh, around that time. Oh, it's, it's very, a, very interesting. I thought Josh film. Brolin was the highlight for that for yeah. me. His character's based on a real person so there's this guy wow. called um i know his surname's mannix and he's a real person who works for a real um hollywood studio and his job is basically to stop the actors from getting bad press so when they go and have an affair he goes and tidies it up and pays the reporters off to not report it sort of thing that brings us almost up to date and what worries me about where we come up to date is that the Coens had to go to Netflix to get their film made, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. They so, didn't. They didn't. They they didn't go there to get a film made. They went there to do the television series. So oh, right, Buster okay. Scruggs was originally a six-part Western anthology series, but having never made a TV series before, felt that it actually was better as a film. That's why there's that they have a Netflix film rather than a Netflix TV series. Okay, so where do they go from here? Do they go, are they making another film or are they going to be working more with Netflix? I actually was trying to find like a bit of information about what it is that they're doing next and I can't, I can't find anything. I think they're, they're not exactly um, fond of the press and sort of being in the limelight. So they're not the sort of people who would be talking about their film you know, before it's even sort of at the point where they have to do like the press for it. But I would expect them to go away and make another mid-budget film. But in this day and age, that might mean that it's on a streaming service. I mean, this has been an interesting and very long discussion about the, the Coens. We've gone through every one of their films. I didn't appreciate how many they've actually made. I, I've got to agree with you, there are a number of real masterpieces in there. They've been going now for 35 years. Yep. They're still there or thereabouts, as we said. Yeah, we had a bit of fun in it, but... But generally, been pretty good. There, there, there was a little bit of a drop off, but it, it's very high quality. What other filmmaker can say that? And if they turned around tomorrow, and this would be interesting, if they turned around tomorrow and made Blood Simple, you wouldn't think it was that much out of the norm of their current catalogue. Whereas, if somebody like Spielberg turned around and made Jaws, it would be a major step out of what he currently does. They haven't drifted very far from what they do which is very quirky. And always entertaining. Always entertaining. Yeah. yeah. No, well, obviously with one exception. Uh, but... I wonder is this because they, ha they have the control. They have the ultimate control. They have the control of the story, the script, the screenplay, then the, the directing and the editing. They've got, Final cut. They've got the, everything together that their artistic vision gets realised really sharply as they envisioned it in the start. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that you know, my the two weakest films in, in their 18 films are the ones that don't fit that mould that Graham just said. So obviously Intolerable Cruelty, which was, they, they were just buffing up a script and Lady Killers, which yes, they wrote, but it wasn't going to be their film. What other directors working today have that? And you go, well, Christopher Nolan, Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson, Spielberg. But that's probably about it, isn't it? But, and even like people like Spielberg don't write their own scripts. You've got a situation here where, you know, these guys will make another film when they're ready to make one because they've written something that they feel they can share. So what's the next retrospective? I've done Tarantino now, so um, I was requested by one of my readers, a guy called Declan, who comments on your show quite often. He asked me to do Tarantino, so I've, I've done that. Going to probably do Martin Scorsese yet, but I'm going to do that with a caveat. I'm not going to include his documentaries or musical films 
because he's done a lot of documentaries and musical films and he's he's also done a lot of features as well so we're quite an undertaking so yeah that's my next uh my next sort of thing so i've done now i've done ridley Four. scott wes anderson Coen brothers and tarantino yeah so we'll come back and talk about tarantino in a couple of months time if that's all right with you if you're sane after yeah, that's fine. watching all the tarantino yeah <laughs> by, by which time of course once upon a time in Hollywood would have come out, even though yeah. that's not in your article. We'll we'll include that and have a little discussion on it. Well, Phil, it's been fantastic. It's yeah. a, a long one, but a really fascinating one. I think you know, for anybody listening, if you're not a Coen Brothers fan, I hope this whets your appetite. Firstly, to go out and check that article from Phil, and where where can they find it again, Phil? PhilTheBearBlog.wordpress.com. Um, cool. So read that article, which is excellent, and then go watch some Coen Brothers. Phil, it's been a blast. See you next time. Yeah, thanks thanks very much. Bye. Cheers, Em. Cheers. I'm sure you'll agree that that was a fascinating discussion on the films of the Coen brothers. If you have any comments or would like to draw our attention to anything we missed, please mail us at show at attheflix.uk or you can contact us on Twitter where we are at theflixpod. We would love to hear from you. We are currently planning a future show with Phil where we will be discussing his Quentin Tarantino retrospective. If there are any questions you would like to ask Phil on that show, please send them in and we will endeavour to ask them. Once again, thanks for listening and goodbye.